The following audio is from All Saints Church. For more information about the church, please visit our website at allsaintsgb.org. Our New Testament reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him about nine o'clock and the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews and with him they crucified two robbers one on his right and one on his left and those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying ha you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days save yourself and come down from that cross So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is God's word. One of my favorite places to visit is the dairy farm in which my dad was raised. It's not too far uh, from here. It's about 30 miles north, 30 miles north here. It's not too much different looking from the farm you see to your left. It's up in Brussels or Brussels if you have a Belgian accent. Uh, I love visiting the farm because it keeps me grounded to remember where I came from. Humble beginnings. You drive up and there is the strong smell of manure. It's manual labor. I can walk into the house on the farm, maybe wearing or knowing or being anything that tempts to puff me up. And within a moment, I can have something or someone pop a pin in that pride. And it's usually one of my uncles who takes me back to reality. I remember in graduate school taking my girlfriend at the time wasn't bliss, to visit the farm on a break. And I was a little nervous to have her see this humble place, this place of humble beginnings. When you're dating someone, you want to impress her. And to my horror and laughter, as we walked into the living room of the farmhouse, there was my Uncle Timmy sitting slumped on the couch, with a shotgun in hand, shooting birds out of the bay window of the house that he had taken the window out for this special occasion. Welcome to my family. 
Welcome to the Bodwin Farm. We broke up a few months later. Uh, not because of that, just, just so you're clear. These lower places, these humble places, these even humiliating places. Friends, they are essential to the gospel story. Because these low places create contrast. Where in the contrast, you can see things you were never able to see before. Whereas the prayer valley of vision reflects, in the daytime, you can see stars from the deepest wells. The deeper the wells, the brighter the stars shine. These low places bring contrast to see things better. And the gospel of Mark, as we've been going through it at All Saints, and I think you as Jacob's well has been, have been going through the gospel of Mark as well, has been a call to follow Jesus, who's the Savior, who's the Son of God, and who is the King. And Mark has led us to see from the beginning of the book that Jesus has power and authority in contrast to man's impotence and foolishness. It contrasts Jesus with the crowds who say, crucify him. It contrasts Jesus with the disciples who've deserted him. It contrasts Jesus with the religious who want rid of him. But Jesus has not yet in the gospel of Mark been crowned king until Mark chapter 15. If you were to name the place for the Lord Jesus to have his coronation ceremony, where the prophecy about King David's son forever taking the throne, where is that going to come true? Where would you hold the ceremony? And who would you invite to that coronation ceremony? Who also would be at the king's right and left at that coronation ceremony? Would you hold it at Westminster Abbey or Capitol Hill or Heritage Hill? No, get lower. Would you have all of the G6 leaders in the world, along with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, invited to the front row and Taylor Swift to sing the opening song? No, get lower. Would you have beside him his best friend, his family, a wife and three kids? No, get lower. None of these would do for the coronation ceremony because this king is like no other king. The Lord, in his gospel plan of contrast, from the beginning of time, from Genesis 3, would name the place where this coronation is going to happen. Desiring that from this lowest place would be crowned the highest king. And those who would desire to follow that king must join his coronation ceremony by dying daily to themselves. The coronation ceremony that we see in Mark 15 is divided in two low places. The place of preparation and the place of proclamation. First scene is the place of preparation. Look with me at verses 16 to 20. As we ask the question, what preparations for the coronation of the king need to be in place? And it's all here. A king's palace, a king's army, a king's clothing, a king's crown, a king's salute... But friends, it's all mucked up with man's manure. The palace is one belonging to a people pleaser named Pilate. The army, probably around 600 of them, take out every frustration they have against every Jew on this one man. 
the clothing appropriately purple, the most expensive of dyes at the time, is draped, but it's not draped on a manicured man. It's draped on a massacred man whose skin has been shredded by a whip. And the crown is not loaded with diamonds and jewels, but with sharp thorns, and it's forced on his head. And Caesar's salute, the highest leader in the earth, is given to him. Hail, King of the Jews! As they beat him with bamboo, salute him with spit, and take a knee to pile insult on injury. Everything a king would need to be prepared for a coronation is right here. Everything they're saying about him and saluting him is true. But why mockery? Friends, why such a horrible humiliation? To see in the low place of preparation, friends, see the height of God's love. Mark doesn't go into gory details about Jesus' body being bloody like the Passion of the Christ film. No. What does he display in this low place? He displays Christ's love for the worst of the worst. If you read this account and think, man, they were horrible to Jesus. You're not at the lowest place yet. Read this account and ask God to show you how much you and every sinful human being who ever lived before you has been terrible to God, has been horrible to Jesus. But as he brings you to that lowest place of being a sinner, of being an enemy of God, see his face there in front of you in the deepest pit of your sin, turning his cheek after cheek after cheek. Have you ever seen any other king with this kind of love for the worst people, for the lowest people, for the least of these? I have not. God knows each of our sinful wiring to run away from him and to refuse him like they did. We are runaways, all of us. There's a song I love. It's called Runaway that depicts Jesus' steadfast love in light of our refusals to have him be our king. And the lyrics are written from the Lord's vantage point. It goes like this. I can see it in your eyes that you're going to run. And I can hear it in your voice and the way that you speak to me that you're going to leave. So as you slip away, I will say this. As you pack your things, I will sing. Even if you stomp and scream and huff and tell me that I'm not good enough, I will take every swing and every blow until you know my love. Even if you beat upon my chest and tell me that you don't understand, I will love you and I will teach you to love me again. Friends, see Christ's love for you in your refusal of him. I don't know that I would want to follow anyone else. Every other leader, when betrayed, just cuts ties. Every other king, when defied, fires his staff. But not this king. Following him means knowing his offer of love will stand. It will never leave, even on your lowest day. Even on your worst day, your many runaways. Following him in faith means asking God to prepare you to love like you've been loved by him. I want to encourage any runaway here, whether people know it or not, come back to the king who hasn't moved a muscle. He's waiting for your return. He knows what you've done against him. He's turned the cheek, beat upon his chest with your doubts, your frustration, your, why did you do this to me? Or why didn't you protect me? Or why did you make me this way? 
bring it to him. And as you see him unflinching, look at you. Would you weep with repentance and gratitude over a king who would invite you, mess that you are, into his royal house and call you a son and call you a daughter? Put your runaway bags down and stay near to him, near to his word, which shows you how prepared he is to love you. If you're a parent of a runaway this morning, I want to encourage you to wait for them. Hold firm like Jesus did in their calling you old-fashioned or out of touch. Hold firm in your love for them as they run from everything you've taught them. And they've chosen the path of least resistance. Stand firm and wait for them. Because from the lowest place, from this place of preparation, would be crowned the highest king. Second scene is the place of proclamation. See this in verses 22 to 32. You see, friends, on the cross, the king is enthroned. He's not on a throne. He's on a cross. The place of the cross is not a place that's known for life and liberty. It's a place known for death and punishment. It's this rock formation called Golgotha. It looks like a skull. And it's a place... That was executioner's row. Some of the women, as Jesus is coming upon Golgotha, try to offer him, the coming king, some mercy. As they give him this anesthetic cocktail of wine and myrrh to maybe dull the pain of what he's about to experience. But the king chooses to remain sober during his enthronement. And there before him, there before him was an open space. Between two criminals. It was probably a space that was reserved for Barabbas. The one whom Jesus exchanged places with. As we talked about last week. And Jesus is stripped either naked or virtually naked. And his clothing is raffled off as a sign of complete shame. And he's hung out to die. And the charge... Or the coronation proclamation in complete humiliation would read in all three known languages. Hebrew, Greek, Latin. So there's no mistaking who this was. Here is the king of the Jews. All of this was prophesied. All of the festivities of this coronation were predicted. To show what? To display to a watching and a mocking world. A king who would bend to the lowest point of humanity in order to lift humanity back up again. A king who would substitute himself for rebels like Barabbas and me. A king who would identify himself to God as the criminal. A king who would, instead of getting off the cross to save himself, would remain upon the cross to save his people. It was not that he couldn't save himself. He wouldn't save himself. Because it would betray his whole kingly objective from his father. Die so that the dead can live again. Die so that the dead could be forgiven. Seeing this king save himself would not be a sign to believe in him. Don't believe in a king who saves himself. Believe in a king who was enthroned on a cross to save you and me. See him in that true light as they didn't. 
as the innocent for the guilty, as the suffering servant for the selfish sinner. Who leads in this kind of way? Who loves in this kind of way? Only Christ the King. Friends, this is the folly. This is the foolishness of the cross. If you're looking at the cross with eyes on saving yourself, then Jesus becomes a fool and he's deserving of mockery and insults. But if you're looking at the cross with eyes down, knowing you're helpless, you're hopeless and your need of saving from the wreck that you are, then Jesus, he's your king. The cross is a comedy, not a tragedy. Because the cross is not the end of Jesus as the actual fools, the religious, the crowd, the disciples thought it was. The cross is the beginning of his reign. The original audience of Mark persecuted Christians under a horrible dictator, Nero. They were faced with shameful crosses to their left and to their right, and they, their sentence was upon them. Their cross was waiting. And Mark, the writer of this gospel, wants them and wants us soon to be probably more persecuted Christians to see that a cross has the king's name on it. That suffering, that death is only the beginning of the kingdom of God. One early display of ancient graffiti demonstrates this flip of the switch that turns when Christ and his followers die for their faith. It shows a man's body on a cross, but his head is not depicted as human. His head is that of an ass, a donkey, and then his body, a human body with a donkey's head. And underneath the picture is a caption that says, Alaximenos worships his God. But underneath that graffiti, as it was crossed off, an encouraging reply is given. Alaximenos is faithful. The foolish one is actually the faithful one. Our world right now is rampant with people who want to shout at everyone who proclaims the truth of Christ and the singularity of Christ as king. They want to say to us, fool, will we turn the cheek? Will we carry a cross? Will be, we be thought an ass and be faithful? In the middle of these two coronation scenes is a man, Simon of Cyrene, who's ordered by the Romans to step into the processional, step into the enthronement, and carry the king's cross. Nothing more said of him except to say he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. These maybe are men who were the recipients of the gospel that they knew were faithful. The readers of Mark might have known Alexander and Rufus. But Simon was forced to carry a cross. He was forced, friends. We are invited. Jesus says earlier in Mark, if anyone would come after me, let him take up a cross, denying himself, sacrificing himself, herself, so that Christ might live in you and so that others too might live through your life. I have two questions as we close. What cross, friends, are you maybe refusing this morning? What cross of self-sacrifice are you refusing or fighting the Lord on? And why is that? Jesus saw the cross as the beginning of the kingdom. 
Why are you seeing your cross as an end? Unless you're living your best life now, see the cross as an invitation to be thought a fool by the world, but faithful to your king. Maybe this cross you're refusing is dying to a sin pattern that's promising you life, but it's only killing you inside. Maybe it's taking up this cross by dying and loving a person who hates you or mocks you or ridicules you or diminishes you. Would you face everything this enemy has said about you, whether it's true or untrue? And don't open your mouth in response. Don't open your mouth to them or to anyone else you could rally on your side. Maybe it's taking up a cross by giving up the need to be recognized, to be honored, to be acclaimed as all that. Is it being outed on Facebook or Snapchat as a fool because you follow Jesus? And instead dying to yourself by making proclamation about being a prideful ass who is saved by a servant king, Jesus. What are you proclaiming? What are you saying? Take up your cross. Second question, what cross are you carrying? Some of you might be carrying a suffering that you're experiencing that seems way too big to endure. I want to encourage you, look to your king who holds his scarred hands in heaven to you, reminding you, my grace is sufficient. His kingly power works best when you feel weak. Look to the cross and find strength to endure a depression, a death of a loved one, a divorce, a day in or a day out physical ailment. See the exalted king perched on a cross even lower than you feel right now. He is the only king on earth who is willing to suffer with you. Friends, from the lowest place, the place of proclamation would be crowned the highest king I'll close with this. It's a prayer from the Valley of Vision, which I mentioned earlier, in its entirety. And I want to make it our prayer, Jacob Swell, our prayer, All Saints Church, and make it our coronation song as we desire to follow the only king who ever began his reign, who ever established a kingdom by dying. Pray with me. Lord, high and holy, Meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place you can see. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness. Your life in my death. 
your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty and your glory in my valley. In the name of the exalted king on a cross and risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of the father, we all pray. Amen.